Donald is our speaker tonight, Donald Rothberg, is a member of the Spirit Rock Teachers Council. He writes and teaches classes, groups, and retreats on meditation, daily life practice, and socially engaged Buddhism in the Bay Area and nationally. Uh, he directs a two-year interfaith program in socially engaged spirituality for Saybrook Graduate School. He's been an organizer, teacher, and board member for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. Um, his book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, A Buddhist Approach to Transforming Ourselves in the World, will appear in 2006 with Beacon Press. In September. <coughs> Thank you, Jim. And again, it's nice to see uh, many familiar faces. Um, I want to talk this evening on a theme which can give us some real focus in our practice, our everyday life, our action in the world. And it's a very challenging theme, I find, for myself and for others. And that theme is, could be uh, expressed in, in a phrase, committed action, non-attachment to outcome. <laughs> it's paradoxical. And I want to explore that paradox and really urge you to consider that principle as a way of um, exploring, again, meditation practice, daily life, work in the world, and so forth. Um, it's a very challenging idea. It's really about how we combine commitment and non-attachment, which on the face of it seem opposites. How do we do that? How do we make that into uh, an ongoing discipline? So I want to start with a story uh, of how I first really got introduced to this principle. And I'll, I'll talk some about the importance of the principle, how to work with it in our daily life, and lastly, how to um, understand some of the mature expressions of what it looks like when there's a very strong level of commitment combined with non-attachment to outcome. That's my, that'll be my talk, and my intention is to talk for maybe, um, oh, another 20 or 25 minutes and have some time for discussion together, because we usually like to finish at 9, right? Have kind of finish and have people ready to go by 9. So that'll be my intention, because I really love the, uh, the dialogue with, with people and, uh, about this theme. So I... I had a, a very strong introduction to this theme a while ago when I was a teacher um, in Kentucky. And I was a teacher at the University of Kentucky um, where I lived in Kentucky and Ohio for a number of years before I came to California. And I was uh, teaching a fall class on ethics. It met at 7.30 in the evening it had a, uh, I found out as I started the class, it had a very sizable population of University of Kentucky football players. <laughs> about a third of the class. And it was the fall. <laughs> what this meant was that the football players came to my class right after practice. And their, their day 
went something like this. They had some classes in the morning, lunch, and then they had about four or five hours of practice. Then they had a really big meal, and then they came to my class. <laughs> You're beginning to sense how I could be exploring committed action and non-attachment to outcome. <laughs> and of course, what they most wanted to do at 7.30 after a big meal was what? Sleep, sleep. right. Now, they couldn't sleep uh, or they were supposed to not look like they were sleeping. But <laughs> second best was to basically just hang out and tell jokes and encourage everyone else in the class to tell jokes. And I was a very young, earnest, idealistic teacher and had my sense of what they should be learning. They should be very, mm, very seriously considering the deep questions of ethics and looking into what the meaning was for their lives and so forth. Okay. So you can get a sense of the setup, right? <laughs> now I'll just add one other detail, which was that ethics was a requirement for the, uh, well, it was one way of meeting requirement. There had been some sort of political machinations a little bit before this and was worked out by whoever decided on requirements that you could meet general requirements for the undergraduate degree in one of two ways. You could either take two courses in philosophy, one of which was ethics, or you could take two courses in mathematics. <laughs> this agreement led to a large number of people being hired for the philosophy department, of whom I was one. And so that agreement surely was one of the reasons I was even hired in the first place. But the um, downside of it was that uh, people really weren't interested in the course. Okay, so you get the picture. There are a bunch of football players wanting to sleep there, and most of the people don't really want to be there. I'm earnest, idealistic, young teacher. Okay, so what happened was that, well, you could very easily know what happened, which was that uh, I would try hard People would be joking and, you know, passing time. And I, I was becoming frustrated. And then in a short time, I was basically suffering because what I wanted to happen wasn't happening. And I didn't know what to do. And I was just going on. And it just didn't seem to be happening in the way I wanted things to happen. And about halfway through, maybe, I don't know, a third of the way through the semester, maybe it was longer because I suffered for a while, uh, I remembered that I had heard of this teaching and I had studied this teaching and I had studied it when I was studying the uh, Hindu text called the Bhagavad Gita, some of you know, which was an important text for Gandhi and for many people. And I had heard of this teaching called action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. And it occurred to me that this was applicable <laughs> to my situation. And, you know, of course, I resisted it some because I thought, well, I know what should happen here and they're being bad, <laughs> right? 
And so I think there was a certain amount of blaming and judgment and so forth. But at a certain point, I became desperate. And I decided I would try out this teaching. And I said, you know, I'm here. I have a contract. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do my best. But at a certain point, I think I'm just going to do my best and leave it and not get overly concerned with the outcome. It really helped me to relax. And I think that the teaching actually went better. I, it didn't mean that I didn't care or I didn't prepare. But in some way, I simply said, I really, in some sense, don't know what's happening. You know, uh, I'm not sure what's going to work. I'm, it's, it's, hard, it's a hard situation, but I'm going to do my best, prepare, and just let whatever happens happen. And it seemed that actually the class went better. I was surprised at the end when some people in their evaluation said they had learned a lot. And about a year later, one of the football players came up to me and he had uh, really nothing to gain, you know, in sort of sweet talking me. And he told me that he had learned more in that class than he had in almost any other class. And um, it was interesting. It really led me to um, incorporate some of this teaching into my work that in some sense I, it's hard to know sometimes the consequences. It's even hard to know uh, whether things are going well. It's hard. Of course, I thought things weren't going well. And it led me to take this principle a little more seriously. And it's a very, it's a very powerful one. And it's one that's actually found in a number of different traditions across around the world. You know, I've expressed it as committed action, non-attachment to outcome. I think we could express it also in pretty colloquial English. We could say it could be expressed as do your best and let the chips fall where they may. You know, and, and maybe that's, that's helpful for some people. It's a very, very difficult teaching. Because if we look at our, you know, our lives, we see that we're very much influenced by the outcome or what we think, whether we think things are working well, whether we think things are happening like we want things to happen. And we can be tremendously discouraged or encouraged by whether we think things are going well. You know, just to, you know, I can reflect as may you, just, just sometimes when things really don't go well in a day, it can really be sometimes challenging. You know, I mean, I, you know, I remember one day when I, I think I went to a meeting in the morning, which felt really horrible. I went to the doctor and had to wait an hour and a half for my appointment. And then the evening, I was supposed to meet with a friend and the communication sort of was mixed up and we didn't meet, you know? And sometimes even a day like that, let alone something really hard, can make one feel the cosmos is hope, hopelessly flawed. You know, do you, do you know that? <laughs> just, just something, even something minor sometimes, you know, relatively minor, can really, can really think I'm obviously a bad person. These things are happening. And so the, uh, this teaching is one that it can really both guide our everyday lives and be quite challenging. It's a teaching that we find in a lot of different traditions. You can find it in the Old Testament, if you think, if you, some of you may know the story of Job. 
Job was a person who was a very pious man. Um, and he was said to be one of the great people, you know, in his community. He, everything was going well. And the story in the Bible essentially is one that asked the question, are we only pious and ethical and live according to our ideals when things are going well? What do we do when things aren't going so well? And what happened to Job is that he suddenly had a series of misfortunes. I think he, um, some of his children died. He uh, lost his reputation and so forth. And he started, his faith started to be questioned. He started to question what he had, what he had lived for before. And the story in the Bible is really asking that question. Can we really live according to our deeper values no matter what happens? You know, in the, in the uh, Bhagavad Gita, it's expressed this way. To live according to this ideal of non-attachment to the fruits of one's actions. Uh, in the Gita, it said, steadfast in the way Without attachment, do your work, victorious one. The same in success and misfortune, this evenness, that is discipline. That's the, that's the teaching there. In the teachings of the Buddha, it's expressed in a teaching called the teaching of the eight worldly winds. Some of you know this teaching. It's actually a very beautiful teaching, or the, it's the eight worldly conditions, the loka dhamma. And it's a teaching that specifies essentially eight ways that we get knocked around. You could say these winds knock us off center. And the, the winds are these, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, I, as one of the organizers and a few of the others, we went right for the negative critical comments and, and we're sure that they were totally right, you know, and does anyone's mind work like that? You know, and so what the practice is of this uh, principle of committed action, non-attachment to outcome, what the practice looks like is to really look carefully to the ways that we get knocked off center. And so we could say that if we want to practice in this way, and this is really the second theme I want to point to, if we want to practice this uh, principle, we have to study all the ways that we get knocked off center and actually be interested in them. 
Look at our patterns. What happens when I get criticism? What happens when I get praise? What happens when I have a pleasant experience? What happens when I have a painful experience? And start to be able to be mindful of what occurs in the mind and the heart when these happen. You know, what, what does it look like? What's the nature of my experience? Start to see all the ways that there is attachment to outcome. And it's, um, it's a challenging practice. But this is, I think, part of what we need to do is just to look at all the ways we get off center and then kind of come back to center. Be mindful. Just name it. Name, okay, I'm getting criticism. Let me look at what that does. Let me explore how it has an impact in my mind. Let me see my patterns more clearly so that I can actually know them really well and not be so dominated because our conditioning really that we've in some sense had installed in us both by our family and in many ways by the society is to be knocked around like this. And so this is a very challenging teaching for us, but I think it's one that is, is very powerful. We can also see the ways that we are maybe the others, you know, there are kind of two ways that we have to look at. One of the ways is the way we get attached to outcome. And the other kind of imbalance that we'll typically find is the ways that we don't necessarily act very clearly or, or very strongly, that we don't have good effort. And for probably for most of us, it's the attachment to outcome which is the problem. But sometimes we may find, our, find that we actually don't really um, give our best energy or that our actions aren't really coming out of the most authentic place or that even in our lives, we sometimes forget our deeper values, our deeper intentions. I think this is very pervasive in our society. You know, when, when I was uh, teaching at the college level, I remember talking to people who were undergraduates. I think, I think this was, I taught also at uh, Kenyon College in Ohio. And I would ask people who were seniors a question. I would ask them, how many of you if you could find work that kind of just gave you enough to live on, but could really express your deeper values and be really work that really you could do really in a full-hearted way. How many of you would do that, even if the pay was modest, but kind of enough to live on? And 80% of the people raised their hand. About 20% wanted to make a lot of money. You know, but 80% raised their hand. And then I asked, how many of you can actually think that you're going to have a job that can let you do this? about 5% raised their hand, 5 or 10%. And that may be accurate, that people have a hard time finding that work which really expresses their, their deeper intentions. And maybe we collectively can help you know, develop a culture where that's more possible. <coughs> but partly what happens to us is that our deeper intentions get submerged and maybe they only resurface when we have midlife crisis, you know? <laughs> That's what movies tell us, right? You have a midlife crisis. And then you remember what was really important for you when you were 18. That's sad, isn't it? It's sad, but, we, but how do we keep on acting and have that connection to our, um, our deeper intentions? So it's a, it's a challenging practice. And I know for myself, it really is something that takes a lot of patience to work with, to continually look, okay, I got really discouraged when something I wanted to happen didn't happen. 
does that mean that I just give up my deeper values? And I think when we look to um, people who've carried this out maybe for a lifetime, or even maybe to our meditation practice, because we can do the same thing in our meditation practice, to what extent are we really committed just to continually working to develop awareness, mindfulness, wisdom, and compassion? And to what extent are we dependent on things going as we want them to go? It's a very challenging practice. It's one that we can look at very much in our meditation practice as well as in our lives. And so I was reflecting on people who I think really expressed this quality of committed action, non-attachment to outcome to a high degree. And I was looking at them and trying to say, okay, what are the expressions or what does it look like when this quality is mature? And I wanted to mention, and this will be the last thing I'll talk about, just a few of these qualities that uh, I think express the sense of committed action, non-attachment to outcome. One of them is what we might call appreciating the journey, that we can, to a large extent, have a sense that it's the journey, which is the whole uh, drama of our lives, which is interesting, and in some sense more interesting than whether this or that happens. You know? And that it's that we commit to the fullness and again, it's interesting. I was thinking also of sports. You know, I mentioned football players at the beginning. I think sports is kind of interesting because on the one hand, there's tremendous attachment to winning and losing, right? And people, coaches get fired, you know, because of too many losses. But I think sometimes in athletics, we also find that sense of, I'm just going to totally do my best. And I care more about that than about the outcome. Sometimes if you see people like uh, even professional athletes before a big game. And you find people talking and say, I'm really looking forward to this. It's really a wonderful challenge just to totally be at this level and do our best. And it seems as they're speaking that they'll accept loss, but they most want to really do their best. And so I think we find both there. But there's a sense of, can I really appreciate the drama of what will happen and just commit to doing my best? Another quality that I think we learn more and more as we do this, and this was expressed uh, I, for the book that I've worked on. I interviewed a man named Dr. Aryaratne from uh, Sri Lanka. Some of you may know him. And he is an amazing figure. He's about five feet tall. He's in his early 70s now. He founded an organization in the 1950s uh, called Sarvodaya which means basically uh, he calls it Awakening for All. And it's a kind of a community organization, community-based organization that's co that, that has developed a way of connecting meditation with life in the community. And they have organizations in 15,000 villages in Sri Lanka. I, I would say that it's actually the most mature expression of bringing meditative awareness into the world that's ever existed. It's a strong statement, but I think it's like that. And I interviewed him last fall and asked him about this very question, how do you keep going? And he said, he, he clarified an expression of this principle. He said, for me, there is no failure. And he said it like this, when I do something with a good intentions, and I fail, and he put, you know, he, and he meant when I look like I'm failing outwardly, 
I do not take it as a failure. It may be a failure to others, but to me it is not a failure because that failure, so-called, may have taught me equanimity or detachment or something else. In learning to accept failure, I succeed. Every action that I carry out carries an internal reason which is always beneficial to me. So he's basically saying that if I take it that I can learn from everything, there's not really any failure. Isn't that challenging? (laughs) But it's a perspective that we can have. We also, I think, get a better sense of the conditions, of the causes and conditions in a given situation. We can look at a situation, for example, if we're trying to, I don't know, stop a war, for example, and we can see that there are larger causes and conditions and we can really make our effort and over time we can have a more long-range perspective and we can know, oh, this took a lot of time because the conditions were such and such. They were hard, perhaps. We can have this very long-range perspective. Dr. Ariaratni says, in trying to stop the civil war in Sri Lanka, which he has helped tremendously to stop, he says, in trying to heal things, we have to have a 500-year peace plan. Because he said, the conditions that led to this problem are deep. There was colonialism, there was war, there was the caste system, there were ethnic divisions. Hundreds of years led to the problem. We need hundreds of years to heal and we have to have that long-range perspective. That helps tremendously not to be so knocked around by immediate ups and downs. To have a long-range perspective and a deeper sense of the causes and conditions that lead to conventional sense of, of failure or success. There's also a a way that we can see that whether things work or not is sometimes quite mysterious. Sometimes it's hard to know why things happen. And having this perspective, I think we rest a little bit more in the mystery of our lives, which I think helps us to keep going, not to think, oh, I know everything. I know what should happen. I know that this should happen we can really uh, appreciate a sense of mystery. I'll tell another example from, or give another story that was very interesting for me uh, about how change occurs. Some of you know the man Daniel Ellsberg who, um, who leaked the Pentagon Papers that helped stop the war in Vietnam in 1969. He said in 1960, he went to... Um, He was in Japan working for the RAND Corporation on nuclear weapons. He had read a book by Jack Kerouac called The Dharma Bums. And he read about this uh, temple in Kyoto. He went to the temple and he actually ran into, he went to a bar afterwards and he actually ran into Gary Snyder, who was the hero of the Dharma Bums, um, who was connected with a monastery, which I guess for him let him also go to bars. And he, and he, and Snyder invited him to his uh, cottage, and he visited. And he spent about a day or two with uh, Gary Snyder, who was studying Zen and was uh, one of the leaders in developing ecological consciousness. 
the the impact of his time there had this tremendous uh, result for Ellsberg. It said it really stayed with him. It really made him wonder about what does it mean to really live authentically like I want to. And this happened in 1960. He said his decision to release the Pentagon Papers in 1969 was heavily influenced by one day with Gary Snyder in 1960. You know, so that example or my example of teaching and then having that student come up a year later, sometimes it's really hard to know what's really happening. And it's very helpful just to remember that quality of mystery. And in a way, to rest in the paradox of, of acting with full commitment, full action, and not think we know necessarily what's happening. It doesn't mean we don't do our best, have our clearest sense of what's skillful or appropriate. But in some sense, this is T.S. Eliot said, ours is in the trying, the rest is not our business. You know, and there's there's a way that we can do that and really uh, rest in this mystery, the paradox of these two apparently contradictory perspectives of being very committed, but then also doing our best and not being attached to the outcome, letting things be where they are and continually moving, acting, being devoted to what we take to be our own most truthful, most truthful, most skillful action. So I'll stop here and invite any uh, questions or comments or perspectives. So thank you very much. Please. I wanted to mention to you, Donald, that uh, Joanna Macy was here and talked about um, Sarvodaya mm-hmm. just after the, earth, the uh, tidal wave yeah, in yeah. Uh, December. Yeah. I don't know if you're aware that she did that, but so we've we've all yeah. been exposed a bit to oh, yeah, no, the idea that there's this here. communication discipline that she said started with teaching um, Dharma practice and. Buddhism uh, amongst all the all the village people. Yeah. That's, that's, all I have. that's great. Yeah. It's um, what I loved about uh, talking with Dr. Ariaratni was just his sense of deep commitment. It's, it made me think of um, the Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi said he was talking about the figure of the Bodhisattva, the the Buddhist figure who is dedicated both to inner awakening and helping others. And Suzuki Roshi said, even if the sun should rise in the west, the bodhisattva has only one course of action. <laughs> and it, it's really, uh, you know, and, and so, you know, what helps, what helps uh, us to develop that? And I, I think what I'm pointing to is that it's not easy. It goes right at our conditioning. But we have, but we begin really by seeing where we get knocked around and gradually, I think, touching something uh, ever more deep in ourselves. You know, as we touch it ever more deeply, we're less bound by what happens externally, even as we try to be skillful. It's, again, it's paradoxical. And to me, it's really, really hard. You know, and maybe even in our culture especially, because for many of us, we're so used to things going pretty well. Yeah. Thank you. Please. Um, 
I I was reading the San Francisco Chronicle this morning, and yeah. I, there was a, a cover story about a soldier who had come home and lost yeah. both his legs, yeah. and it was about his struggle, like you know, in life, and how he followed his wife, and he had to take antidepressants, and yeah. and then tonight I watched a tennis match. I watched Roger Federer, like the number one player in the world, just running around, just hitting all these shots, and it occurred to me, that's not fair. You know what what's going on there? Yeah. I, I, the question is. Can anyone be on the path, you know, and, and meditate? It just seems to me some people go through such trauma, and, and they're, yeah. they, they, like mentally ill people or people that have lost both their legs, can anybody benefit from the spiritual path? It yeah. just seems to me that some people have more access to it than others. You know, how does, you know, th- I guess that's my question. Yeah. Well, it's a, d- it's a deep question, isn't it? Um, I, I think the the answer um, would would be yes, um, and but to really give a full answer it would take a while. But if if you look to, for example, pe- culture where let's say spiritual practice is really central, um, maybe something like Tibet, and you, and you look there and you see that some of the people who really had very very hard situations, let's say with the Chinese with the Chinese occupation and brutality, they seem to have been able to go through very, very difficult circumstances. You know, the people who really have a deep practice. And so I think it's a matter of, um, so I don't think having, you know, if one has a strong background, very difficult circumstances seem to be somewhat workable. And a lot of the great spiritual teachings are about that, aren't they? I mean, think of the story of Job, or maybe many of us could think of stories like, because I think they're right at the heart of any spiritual tradition. And then it's a question of people in our culture who may, be, who may have really difficult experiences. I think they can definitely benefit by some kind of spiritual perspective. I mean, again, we can probably think of a lot of examples, but you know, one thing that comes to mind is um, think, uh, you know, I was thinking of um, films from the civil rights movement and just think of, uh, you know, one thing that's always moved me is seeing the films of older black and black uh, men and women who may be, who may have had a lifetime of oppression and that somehow they can still keep uh, both dignity and a perspective in which they don't let, they don't become bitter and lost in hatred. And where does that come from? I think a lot of it comes from the spiritual perspective, which in this case is, is Christian for the most part. So I think that it really is a question about what's the deepest part of ourselves. And if we're in touch with that deepest part of ourselves, is that in some sense stronger than any kind of... Um, mental or emotional disturbance that comes from something not going well. And I think the answer of virtually every spiritual tradition is yes. Not that it's at all easy, right? Not that it's at all easy, but it's really an invitation to explore that. And it can be, you know, it can be for people who don't have any sense of spirituality, it's, it's, it is very hard. But I think that's the answer which you find because it's really about is if we go deeply into our nature, 
is our wisdom, our compassion, our love <coughs> deeper than our bitterness or our frustration or our anger? And I think the answer is yes, but it's hard to get there sometimes. Thank you. I, I, Please. I have a comment and a question. Okay. Um, the comment is, I guess what I ask myself when I'm about to do something is, how will I feel later about myself if I do this or I yeah. don't do it? You know, um, it's kind of my insurance policy. You yeah. know? And um, the, my, my question is, it seems also important to really use what happens as a learning experience. Right. Right. You know, and so I think you touched on that, but we might have a value and it might... Um, I guess it might not play out very well in the world. And so yeah. there, there's a, I mean, it might be that the situation that we need to let go of the outcome, but it also mean, may mean that we need to make some adjustments. That's right. And so how do we decide which it is? That's a great question. And uh, did everyone get the question? You know, so, so what I'm talking about doesn't mean that we just blindly go and do the same thing, whatever the outcome. <laughs> right? You know, that I will, that I will simply you know, keep with the same idea and not learn at all. Uh, but I didn't, you're right, I didn't touch on it so much. But, and so, but it's really something about continuing to be, as, I, I did use the word skillful, trying to be as skillful as we can. So in my, in my example of my teaching, that didn't mean that I didn't try to be as good a teacher as possible or to try to find ways to reach the students and so forth but that it was an ongoing learning experience and I could, I could, you know, as it were, get feedback from the situation and try to be more skillful at the same time that I could, in a way, um, release my attachment to the immediate outcome. In other words, I could simply do my best and not berate myself and still get, and still try to learn something. It's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, tricky. To put all that together. Because I think, I think we can learn without being overly attached. That's really what I'm saying. We can learn to be more skillful and keep on um, letting the situation and letting, you know, for example, letting us know that something uh, didn't work well to modify what we do next time, but not use that as an excuse simply to um, blame ourselves or blame others, blame the situation or give up. And I think all too often we do the latter. And so, so I would really add your, your piece to what I was exploring and, and add, say that, oh, yes, it's very important to keep learning and sort of add that to the mix of the, of the discussion. So maybe this will be the last one and I will have to be brief because we're getting, we're very, we're close to the finishing time. So I'll be, if you can be brief, I'll be brief. Okay, you're on. Okay. Um, this past weekend, I went to a um, uh, a couple of speakers by the multi-faith organization yeah. for peace and justice, yeah. and um, one of them had been a an inspector an inspector for the um, weapons of mass destruction yeah. for several years in Iraq, and one had been a CIA analyst for several years, yeah. and they were talking about us uh, focusing our efforts on the war in Iraq yeah. and. Um, I came away from that feeling that we, you know, that there's a, a lot of validity to that point of view. And today I wrote an, an open letter to moveon.org mm -hmm. asking members to think about just 
focusing their efforts at this point in time on the suffering in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there are so many um, valid concerns in the United States today, but at this point, focus on the war in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And um, with 214,000 Americans dead and uncounted Iraqis dead, do they realize the power that we could have if we all focused on the war in Iraq? Mm -hmm. And um, so I just think that, that those gentlemen had a really important point to make. And, um, you know, I just don't see Americans standing up the way they did during the Vietnam War days. I just think we're so much more placid now. And we should be standing up. Yeah. Well, maybe it points to, you know, this, this takes me back, thank, thank you for the question, takes me back to um, the perspective I had that when we, when we do this work on learning what it means to do committed action and with non-attachment outcome, you might want to rephrase that. You know, maybe non-attachment outcome doesn't resonate with you well. Maybe you just say, you know, do your best and let the chips fall where they may. But... Uh, there are, I think, two main ways that we can get at off balance. One is by being attached to outcome, and the other is by not keeping with committed action. Some issue about them being so discouraged by what happened that they haven't kept with their committed action. And so there's something about um, keeping with, with that action and making commitment to whatever it might be in one's life. It might be something personal to a personal course, direction. It could be in a marriage to really have that commitment. It could be to work for peace in the world. And just to say, this is what I'm doing and I'm going to really look carefully at how not succeeding on February 15th, or you know, when the invasion happened, has just made me withdraw, be shocked, whatever. Because it, it must have happened to large numbers of people. Why are those people, I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but why are those people not continuing to be active? It's a, it's a, I'm not gonna give an answer right now, but I'm saying that there's something to look at in terms of saying, I'm gonna continue with this course and not and watch how I get really swayed by whether things seem to work or not. And that's I think that's a deep issue for the peace movement. It's a deep issue in marriages. It's a deep issue in our meditation practice, just in continuing with what we think most important. And so I'll have to we could talk another hour about this question. But if it's OK, I think I'm going to have to I want to end here because of the because of the time, but I'll be happy to stay a little bit later and, and talk with who, who wants to stay. So, so thank you for the question. And, um, I'm sorry that's um, it's a short answer, but I hope that it begins to go in that direction of, of a response. And so let me, I, I will stay for a little while more if, if it's okay, because um, I could stay and look at this for a long time. And I wish I wish we had another half hour or hour, but we don't, or at least officially. So uh, I think uh, we usually like to end.
it's a way of reminding ourselves of our deeper intention, which I think is really important to find ways to keep doing in our daily lives. How do we really stay in touch with our deeper intentions? That's one of the ways to um, keep this balance of commitment and non-attachment going. You know, it might be to just remember every morning what's important or whatever. But this dedication of merit is, is a remembrance that we meet together, we, um, we meditate together, we talk to each other about how to bring this into our lives, partly for our own well-being, but also to a large extent to help others. And so in the dedication of merit, we say something like this, May the fruits of our time together, may the fruits of our meditation, our talking together, our reflection, may it be shared with others outside this meeting. May whatever is of benefit from this evening be shared with others for their own healing, for their freedom, for their awakening, for their liberation. Thank you very much. And let me know what you find about this exploration. Mm-hmm.